that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and thank you for tuning in today. Today on the show, we're hearing from local author and urbanist Matt Hearn as he addresses the question, Vancouver, the best place on earth? He is the author of many books, including Common Ground in a Liquid City, Essays in Defense of an Urban Future. He is founder of Car Free Vancouver Day, and he co-directs the Purple Thistle Center. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. In 2001, 2001, Simon Fraser University's Department of History hosted a lecture series, Think You Know Vancouver? Think Again. On January 27, 2011, local authors Matt Hearn and Charlie Demers gave short talks to address the question, Vancouver, the best place on earth? And in turn, provided a critical take on Vancouver, its history, or perceived lack of history, and why we need to think about critically um, about Vancouver with a bit more honesty. In March, we heard the first half of this event by hearing from local author and comedian Charlie Demers, and we'll be hearing from Matt Hearn in the first half of the hour, followed by a discussion uh, both between uh, Charlie Demers and Matt Hearn. And again, Charlie Demers is author of Vancouver Special, which takes um, a, a quite a, a um, com- uh, comedic or an, and entertaining uh, look at uh, Vancouver, but also a very honest look at Vancouver and its neighborhoods. And Matt Hearn, um, who you'll be hearing in the first half of the show, uh, and then later with Charlie Demers in conversation and discussion, Matt Hearn's uh, book, most recent book, um, Common Ground in a Liquid City, is also a very honest um, and I think a very uh, a much needed uh, contribution uh, to situating Vancouver uh, within uh, the urban literature um, and does a wonderful job with a number of short vignettes uh, to describe and relate Vancouver uh, to other cities um, and other themes within um, urbanism and urban thinking. So I want to also thank the SFU History Department for permission to broadcast this content. Again, Matt Hearn, uh, followed by a conversation uh, between him and Charlie Demers. This is The City here on CATR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca and available as a podcast from the cityfm.org. I'm going to try to pick up a little bit where, uh, where Charles left off here. Um, 
Uh, and I want to I want to just uh, to talk a little bit about Vancouver, about its present and about its future, um, but particularly in the context of what Charles has described as this presumed kind of ahistoricity of Vancouver, this idea that it's uh, essentially an empty lot waiting for waiting for profit to be made. Um, and I want to talk about some of those uh, divergent and disparate visions for for Vancouver's future. Um, and I think there's there's a couple of reasons that 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 I started thinking about when I started thinking about studying Vancouver a little bit more closely, aside from the fact that it's, you know, my home and lived here for a long time and stuff. Um, and the first reason that kind of impelled me a little bit was um, uh, that the world is an urban place. Uh, and that's for the first time in, in, in world history that more people uh, live in cities than any other kind of uh, settlement. And, and that's, uh, that's never happened before. Uh, and it doesn't look like it's going uh, to—it's going to stop anytime soon. People are moving to cities at an astonishing rate, uh, and by all indications, our, our future is our global future is, is an urban future. Uh, and secondly, I, I wanted to look more closely at Vancouver because there's so much hyperbole uh, surrounding Vancouver, you know, from from all directions. You know, part of that is you know when you travel and you visit somebody, you say if you're from Vancouver, they say, oh my God, what a beautiful city, you know. And you go, oh, well, yeah, you know, mountains are nice, yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and, and uh, or you know, if you talk to urbanists or whatever, and they say, say, oh, that's you know, that's a city that gets it right, you know. The Economist, you know, calls it the world's most livable city. Um, uh, KPMG calls it the, the world's best city to do business in. Uh, some people want to call it uh, the greenest city. Um, there's lots of hyperbole drifting around Vancouver. And so, and so for those two reasons that I, I, I decided some time ago to take a little bit uh, uh, extra time and look a little bit more closely at Vancouver. Uh, so uh, I did. Uh, so what I did, the way I kind of structured this, this new book of mine, is I, I visited 10 different places around the world. Um, and then I did what pretty much all of us do, I figure, when we go to another place, which is, uh, you know, you look at the place, you think about it, you kind of uh, reflexively look back at your home and you wonder, well, why, you know, why they got that? What's different about that? What's there, you know? So I began to, to consider the, the place that I was in, consider it uh, in, in relationship to Vancouver, and then to try to think about that relationship back and reflect back on the larger world of urbanism. And really, the kind of core bit that the core bit that kind of animated the rest of the book was to try to ask implicitly and explicitly what makes for a good city, what makes what makes for a great city. Um, and so, I'm going to pull out uh, just a couple of threads here for you tonight, uh, briefly, and see if I can make a, a small argument. Um, but the the kind of the, the baseline that I that I worked with uh, that I came to was that that this relentless and this uh, incredible urbanization of the globe um, is is a good thing, um, and maybe counterintuitively, it, uh, I've come to kind of believe that it might actually be our only shot at a genuine ecological future. Um, the movement of people to live densely, to live closely together to share small amounts of space might be our only opportunity to stop using up so much of the natural world. Um, David Owen, who many of you are familiar with, he wrote a great article in The New Yorker some time ago uh, when he talked about, uh, after graduating from college, he and his wife uh, moved to an ecological community. Uh, and they, they lived in a real small area together. They, uh, they, they bought very little. Uh, the community uh, had public transportation and things were close so they could walk. Um, and that they lived this, this incredibly uh, sustainable lifestyle. A uh, lifestyle where they, they bought very little and...
that their energy use was a fraction of that of the regular Americans. Um, and that, uh, that ecological community was Manhattan. Um, and it's true. So if Manhattan was to be measured in um, uh, energy, uh, energy use per capita, uh, if it was a state, it would have been the, it'd be ranked 51st. Now, there's, there's lots to, to quibble with with that analysis, but there's something there. There's something important there, um, uh, which is to say that uh, I think that our shot uh, at an ecological future relies on us learning how to share space, learning how to share resources, learning how to share energy, learning how to use our land base, and using how to, uh, learning how to apportion uh, those resources out carefully. Um, so to my mind, thinking about density is an exigency. If we're thinking about an ecological future, if we're thinking about a future that we haven't exhausted all our natural resources, we have to be thinking about living densely. That density, though, is not just a straight exigency. We have to think about density thoughtfully. We have to think about density in terms of equity, in terms of equity, equity and we have to think about densifying in a way that uh, increases uh, social equality, not exacerbates it. But that density, if, if that density is going to work, we have to understand how to live commonly. Um, and to do that, I think we have to embrace cities that are full of vitality. Uh, we come to cities for good reasons, right? We, we come to cities to, to encounter the other. That's the best part about coming to a city is running into people who don't look like you, don't think like you, don't act like you, and don't believe like you. Um, and I think that, that the best part of that is not running into people who have a little bit darker skin pigmentation than you, but that have fundamentally different values. And, and when we think about and talk about living compactly, about living density, that's what really what's at stake, is learning how to share space with people who are not like us. Uh, and not learning just to handle that or to find the liberal platitudes that get us through the day, but learning how to really embrace that. And not just embrace that with, uh, on minor differences, but on very important fundamental differences. Learning how to be friendly, learning how to be neighborly, learning how to comprehend and to appreciate people who are not like you at all. And I don't mean not like you at all in superficial ways, but I mean who have opinions that you might well, lo might well loathe. And to learn how to share that space. Um, and so, to my mind, what actually creates urban vitality is that difference. Um, and so we have to think about embracing difference. And I think that means fundamentally a movement beyond tolerance. Um, I think tolerance is, is woefully inadequate for the task at hand. And I don't mean that in uh, uh, what I'm, ta I'm not talking about intolerance here. I'm talking about something else that uh, somebody like Gustavo Esteva might name hospitality. Um, and I think that we could also talk about it as a, as a radical plurality, or what Ivan Illich might have talked about as recovering threshold and recovering table. But I think that the movement beyond tolerance towards hospitality is fundamental if we're going to be able to think about how to live densely and how to share space, and how to share space in terms of vitality. So rather than try to ameliorate that difference, learn how to embrace that difference and celebrate that. And I think part of that project involves thinking about what Jane Jacobs would call a city's innate extroversion. Um, I think it's a real mistake, actually, to think about cities in terms of urban villages um, or, collections of, or collections of villages. Um, I think that we need to embrace a, a, a publicness. Um, 
the capacity to embrace the the messiness the uh the oftentimes strangeness of public life um and in particular to learn to embrace public space uh and i would say even more than that common space um we have a particular phenomenon in vancouver of uh, an obsessive compulsive twitch i would say about regulating public space um uh, and thinking that we can marionette, uh, marionette, that we can choreograph the way public space, um, with the way we use public space and the way public space operates, and I think it's a, I think it's a fantasy. Um, I, I have to say, in all honesty, I think it's it's pure arrogance to think that we can master plan a, a great city. Um, I think that uh, that a great city, a living city, it has to unfold, or what Christopher Alexander might call a crete. Uh, it has to, a city has to emerge from a million decisions on the ground by everyday people. It has to unfold into itself. Um, and I think that, that there's a tremendous amount of, of good in this city, and there's a ton to be proud of. And I think that most of that stems from a kind of humility. Um, the humility of publicness, uh, and even more than that, commonness. I think that when we talk about common space, it's something slightly different than what we normally think about public places. And we think about the best of a city uh, architecture, the best of the city places. We think of stuff like uh, libraries. We think about uh, Charles drove me down today in a car co-op car. Or you think about parks, right? And, and the, the best part of a library is that you don't have to buy 8,000 books for yourself. They got them in the library, right? And you don't have to have your own estate to walk on because you've got a park across the street, right? And so those are the best examples, or, or some of the best examples of, of, of common life. Um, and I think to learn how to learn how to inhabit common space, to learn how to take control of it, the, to learn how to really uh, take popular control of it, I think once again that we have to return to that ideal of difference. But while I think culturally, uh, I think it's a real mistake to try to turn the city in on itself, to try to imagine the city as a collection of villages, I think that it's important to look to the neighborhood as the locus of political control. And I think that's a, a real different thing because oftentimes when we think of localism, we think of parochialism, we think of insularity, we think of small-mindedness, we think of all the reasons why we left the city, why we left small towns to come to the city. But I think that if we're going to think about a city culturally as an extroversion, as a city of difference, we can also think of a neighborhood as the political unit that makes the most sense for, neighborhood, for, for uh, civic decision-making to occur. And that's to say that I think we can look to places like Porto Alegre, we can look to Curitiba, we can look to all kinds of places where, um, where participatory budgeting and participatory democracy is at its best. And in fact, that not just that we should look to that, but we should embrace that difference again. But instead of just a, different, a cultural difference or a social difference, but a difference of opinion. And oftentimes that means a mess. That means infuriating slowness that involves inefficiencies, that involves just genuine pain in the assness. Um, but I think that we're not going to get a living city, a city of vitality, a city of difference, a city that unfolds unless we have a political process that replicates it. Uh, and it's a, it's a pain in the ass, oftentimes, that kind of messiness, that kind of strangeness. And oftentimes that means a certain kind of dysfunction and even a little bit of danger here and there. But that's sure better than the smooth home of neoliberalism. Um, and all that, I would say, the... The, the best of a, of a city of vitality, a city of, 
uh, of difference. That said, it actually, in a funny way, rests on the idea of different, on the idea of equitableness, because in a in a simple way, you're not going to have a city where people are in the street, people are participating in public life, people are willing to participate in public dialogue when they're so freaking busy that they got to hustle because they got to hustle every single day to pay the rent or make a mortgage. Um, and I think that's one of the things that oftentimes in Vancouver is that, I mean, how often do you visit with somebody and you say, how you doing? They say, busy, crazy busy, stupid busy, unbelievably busy. And, and how many times have you said that yourself? Uh, and, and what that does is it begins to squeeze the life out of, out of public conversation, out of public life, right? Because a lot of that, that busyness uh, it means that you're in your car, you're at work, you're hustling at home, you're running around like crazy, and you don't have time to encounter the other. You don't have time to encounter, uh, encounter people who have different opinions because you don't have time to consider it because you're so busy hustling to make, uh, to make ends meet. So I think in lots of ways that a city of life and a city of vitality has to be an equitable city. Um, and you know that recently that if you read... Uh, 24 hours, for example, you will know that Vancouver was recently rated uh, the third least affordable city in the world um, for housing, um, with a, a median house price that's 9.5 times what the average salary is, um, that's only exceeded by a couple other cities in the world. Um, I don't know if, you, if it didn't get equal uh, kind of play, but uh, earlier, I guess in 2010, uh, the firm KPMG uh, rated Vancouver as the most corporate tax-friendly city in the world. And that, I read that about seven times, trying to make sure that that made sense, and I double-checked it again this morning because it sounded stupid. Um, it's true. Uh, Vancouver, uh, at, least by one, uh, at least by one measure, has the, most, uh, has the lowest corporate tax rate than anywhere in North America, and is considered the most corporate, corporate tax-friendly city in the world. Now, that sounds absurd, and it runs counter to many of our opinions about, uh, about what this city is and what this city uh, holds dear, but there's something there and something important to consider. Um, and I would argue that we need to move uh, in exactly the opposite direction uh, and embolden as much as possible the non-market sectors of our economy uh, as much as possible rather than vastly overvaluing the corporate sectors. Uh, a city that celebrates difference has to work very hard to make sure that the material conditions are in place to allow those differences to carve out space for themselves. And you know that you, know, you have that exact experience yourself as well. A city of difference, a city of vitality, uh, is a place where small theater companies can find rehearsal space, where cheap bars can open quickly and easily, uh, where people can find co common gathering spaces that are not bylawed into torpor, where public events and festivals can happen easily. And of course, most urgently here, uh, a city of vitality has to be one where there's enough affordable rental stock for activists, for artists, for working class families, everybody else who doesn't want to own a house. Because when the gap between the rich and the poor uh, becomes too great, the commonwealth, such as it is, becomes mythological. Uh, and neighborliness begins to fray, and it has to be enforced by the police power of the state. Uh, and the most recent examples that you've encountered are the Project Civil Society and the, uh, the Clean Streets Act, where uh, vast uh, law enforcement resources were brought to bear to get people to get along, um, to treat each other with civility. Um, but I think that when, 
the, when we begin, and I think I would argue that much of the new downtown densification has created a dialectic of unfor- unaffordability. Uh, and that kind of unaffordability, that kind of financial squeeze, will put a, a fierce crimp on the vitality, on the fun, on the creativity of a city. Um, and I, I think that as a, a city with a vibrant common sphere, with uh, a city that's marked by public participation by political vitality can't be a city where people are hustling their asses off every day just to make rent. And I would say that that, that creates a, an exigency for us because contemporary cities, you know, pretty much overwhelmingly are, are built by and, and for greed. Um, and this exa- the city, for lots of ways, is a prime example of a city that's taken for so many of us, and for, you know, for lots of good and understandable reasons, something as precious and dear to people as their homes, and, and turned them into uh, private equity uh, generation- generating mechanisms, um, where that most people clutch their homes tightly as, the o- as their only real source of savings and their only real way to build equity. And I would say that, that much of that then... Uh, falls on us to create a non-market sphere. And that's a complicated thing because, as you know, in so much of our culture, um, the uh, once clear definitions between private space and public space have been blurred in lots of ways. They become difficult, and there's all these kind of weird hybrid spaces that are neither public nor private necessarily and kind of confuse us. So, for example, a mall references all the uh, iconography of a, of a public market. There's a place to walk, and there's shops, and places to get a coffee, and there's stores, and there's, it, it feels like a public space in lots of ways, but of course you know that malls are all privately owned and are all private spaces. And you know that for most of our city neighborhoods are now run, uh, or at least organized, by uh, what they call uh, the ambassadors. You know, folks in yellow vests who walk up and down and publicly securitize space uh, based on a fairly anomalous and fairly kind of loose set of rules that uh, they've been handed by their BIAs about what public space should look like. But I think, and, and, and what that does, it creates a, a, a trajectory of turning everything that we know about the city into market space, where all of it is in the service of the market. And I think that then we should turn that around, turn that on its ass, and I think we need to be looking constantly to carve out non-market spheres of activity, non-market spheres of housing. And particularly when I think of housing, I think of, I mean, yes, I think it's important that we embolden and enlarge a social housing for sure, but there's a whole other range of options in there, stuff like community land trust, stuff like shared limited equity, stuff like the co-op movement that are non-market opportunities but are not just simply products of government largesse. So, and I, I think that those are examples uh, just in one small sphere, one, or in the housing sphere, of ways that we can begin to think outside of market ideology. And we begin to create the possibility of non-market relationships, non-market common spaces, and non-market social sphere. And I think that that provides a possibility for a real city of vitality, a city that unfolds, a city in which people can participate. And I think that Vancouver, in lots of ways, gets lots of things right. I think there's lots that we should be proud of in Vancouver and lots that need to be protected, lots of fantastic work that has been done. But I also really do believe that we can do better than this, that we can create a city that doesn't price its best citizens out of the core of the city, a city that doesn't require us to hustle like crazy to make rent, and a city that can, doesn't have to revert and show our soft bellies to neoliberal logic. Uh, I'm convinced that, uh, that we can do better than that. 
I'm going to stop there. Thanks, folks. So uh, I got one quick question here for Charlie. You ready, my man? Yeah. And so what do we, should we do it from these mics? Is this mic happening? Can people hear what I'm saying right now? That's working for you? Yeah. Because okay. this is – I feel like I should point out because he's not going to say it. And the reason we have to uh, work around oh, Matt's shush, cane. Dude, dude. He just uh, donated his kidney to somebody. Uh, so that's the kind of hospitality he wants out of all of you <laughs> to be willing to give up an organ. So – <laughs> you should be scared by his talk. Dude. Not emboldened. Uh, no, you're going to embarrass me, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, Charles, I got a question for you. So I get that uh, you see threads of similarity through Vancouver's history and that there's uh, all kinds of echoes that you identify. Uh, have there been places that you've identified? This is entirely unscripted, by the way, so yeah. um, I don't know if this make, question makes any sense. Um, that you see actual definitive kind of like splits uh, or real points of change in Vancouver's history, places that you've identified where things have shifted in a discernible, definite way? Or is that, is that just kind of Hegelian weirdness, uh, historical thinking? It doesn't really happen that way. Um, I, so, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just stand here or sit. I mean, this is a very strange... I really have still not gotten used to this room. Um, <laughs> And they can say, we've been told that if anything goes wrong, that we should just run down and jump into uh, that pen, and then uh, we will be taken to an escape tunnel. Yeah. Um, I, there's definitely, and, and, and I don't want to give the impression, and, and so one of the reasons that I said off, off the top that, um, that I was maybe being slightly contrarian and, and exaggerating some of of these uh, lineages or whatever is because I, I don't think that people are, are completely wrong to call Vancouver a young city, to call it a new city, to call it a city that is um, finding its identity. I think those things, uh, uh, yeah, compared to Toronto or compared to London, I mean, compared to Moscow, we we are, uh, I mean, a very, very young city. I mean, you go uh, to a place, one of the, one of the cities that uh, Matt, visited and talked about in, the, in his book, and it's a city that I've also visited, and, uh, which is Istanbul. And, and, you know, when you're a city like Istanbul, I mean, the, the sedimentary layers of history are, are all there. And I, I, I had the uh, weird experience of visiting um, Istanbul and New York in the same year, and I just thought that it should be required for anyone who wants to go to New York, has to go to Istanbul either before or after, because you really can get caught up in the hubris of, of New York and the idea that you will always be the center of the world. You know, your empire is the empire that will be permanent. Uh, you go to Istanbul, and there's this uh, world weariness of people who understand what it means to not just be at the margins, but to be at the margins after having been right at uh, the center. Um, and so, you know, compared to places like that, abs- absolutely. And so Vancouver is going to um, discover uh, one, one place where there, I think there has been a major uh, stride in Vancouver would be uh, the uh, relationship between um, uh, East Asian uh, and South Asian Vancouverites and Vancouverites of European, uh, of European descent. That denies that there's been kind of... Uh, a, a forward movement, at least in some respects, in, in that on that portfolio, is, is probably being 
rhetorical or making a point. It's, I mean, it's, it's certainly not anywhere near where it should be, and there are still all these sort of subterranean cultural problems. But you look at, for instance, the uh, development of, of a suburb like Richmond, um, which, I mean, literally in the space of a generation, went from being kind of uh, a, a sleepy, mostly white, small suburb with, you know, on so a lot of unpaved roads and big ditches. And like my grandmother, uh, we lived uh, just across the Fraser from Richmond and South Burnaby. And uh, you know, uh, before I was in the years before I was born, she'd be afraid to go to Richmond in terms of you know falling in the ditches. She was, for some reason, she was just paranoid that she was going to fall into one of the ditches. And uh, actually, Dennis Boland's new book opens with a uh, uh, a guy whose taxi is stuck in one of the just Richmond ditches. Um, this is a city that went, you know, in the space of a generation from into being really an expatriate um, Hong Kongese and Taiwanese city. I mean, it's, it is a... And, and to see that happen, where I think the number is something like 65%, um, to see that happen in the space of a generation and not in the complete absence of any kind of racial grumbling or any kind of tension or whatever, but really on the scale of like... Vancouver's past or Europe's present, essentially nothing, you know, essentially uneventful transition. Uh, um, and, and that's something that, it, you know, we should be proud of. I, I do think that there have been um, big departures in Vancouver in terms of, uh, and I'm not sort of, the, I'm not the first person to note this, but in terms of being kind of a hard-kicking, uh, shit-kicking lumber town of, of working-class people to being a sort of, almost endearingly uh, sissified, kind of genteel place. I mean, the idea 35 years ago of Vancouver being the kind of yoga... Yoga and and matcha latte uh, uh, center of North America would have been absurd to these kind of like flannel-vested BC Lions fans. Uh, um, You know, these... This was a major uh, cultural rupture. Um, and so I, I certainly don't want people to come away feeling like, you know, it's always been the same city or that we're kind of doomed to the city that was. Um, but uh, just that there, the, the, the notes in, in the ledger of difference have been so much more kind of deeply written um, and, and, uh, and emphasized that I, as a corrective, I think it's worth looking at, at the, the continuities. Um, so my question for uh, Matt, so this is like um, the exact opposite of uh, the real world or the media or whatever. This is like a debate on Vancouver's future between the hard left and the slightly harder left. Uh, uh, so we can, in like 45 minutes, we can all go back to real life where various brothers from the Campbell family just, uh, make decisions on what it should look like. But um, uh, my question is... Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, community empowerment, I think, is, is very important. And people making the decisions that lead to, you know, the city or the neighborhood that, that they live in, I, I totally understand that. Um, but I also of grassroots empowerment is used as an evasion from higher levels of government or any level of government to do... Uh, what they ought to be doing. So I was in a debate, um, or, or you know, saw a debate at, at the CBC, the French CBC, last week about culture in Vancouver, and 
the guy from the city just... And the city has been better than the provincial government, certainly, on, on the arts and culture stuff and the cuts and, and, and stuff in the last couple of years. But it, it was always... Whatever answer to a question about there's no money or there's no support was always some kind of, you know, faux-inspiring, like, yeah, well, that's because you have the chance now to uh, get excited and create your own opportunities. And it was like... um, you know, basically kind of a take on, like, oh, yeah, no, don't think of it as homelessness. Think of it as, like, an awesome camping experience that you'll have for the rest of your life. Uh, so when I look at something like uh, Granville Island, and I know that uh, from re- previous uh, writings of yours that, you know, that your feelings on Granville Island are, are mixed, but when I look at something like Granville Island as compared to uh, Yale Town, which I think those are the, uh, it's kind of the fair analog, the development of these two sides of Falls Creek, one purely on the kind of neoliberal model, the other on this kind of top-down, uh, heavy federal involvement, government, uh, government involvement in, in planning it. And I do feel that for whatever its faults, that there is a vitality that exists on Granville Island that doesn't exist in its sort of uh, free market cousin. And I just want to know sort of what your take is on, on what level of involvement is appropriate and, and, and what should we be demanding, if anything, of various levels of government in, in that kind of, when it comes to that kind of planning. I tell this story sometimes about uh, uh, giving a talk one time years ago in, in Greece. And, uh, uh, and this dude said, uh, he took, came up to me and said, look, don't, don't don't lecture. Greeks hate being lectured too. <laughs> don't, don't don't talk very long at all. He says, and, and what he described was exactly what happened, which was that somebody put up their hand and said, "I, I have a question." And, and then they went on for about 15 minutes, you know, and they didn't have a question at all, right? They just wanted to say something. It was real smart and real interesting. And then somebody else said, well, I have a question, and they didn't have a, uh, didn't have a question at all. They wanted to talk to the first person, right? And the thing went up back and forth and back and forth for about four hours, and I was gone, right? I'd, I'd gone twice to have a pee already, and I, you know, <laughs> everybody had forgotten that I was there. So that's a good question, Charlie. I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. There's <laughs> no question in there at all, man. Yeah, no. Um, no, there's a question. I was just trying to give you a chance to go pee. Um, I appreciate it. Okay, so I got a question. Here's what, here's what I would say a little bit to that, which is that and it's, it's a lot of uh, conversation around, you know, that, uh, that big society uh, initiative they're doing in Britain right now, right? And it's the classic kind of devolution of, of responsibility without power. Right? And, and that's the real place that cities find themselves in the 21st century, right? which is uh, vast amounts of responsibility pouring onto their laps because uh, other layers of government are just completely incapable of dealing with it, right? Housing not being, the, you know, being among them. Uh, but very little taxation power and very little power, you know, legislative power to deal with it, right? So it's the exact opposite, or it's the exact worst part of, of decentralized power, right? Yeah, here's all the responsibility, but you got no power and you got no money. Good luck. Right? And that's largely what cities have right now, right? And really, like that's what you're talking about, um, with so much of the idea of kind of uh, the, in particular, the kind of um, pull yourself up by the bootstrap kind of quasi conservative logic of, of, you know, community power, right? And I think we need to be, I think you're doing right to, to look at that and to resist it in lots of ways, right? To say, oh, well, here's a great opportunity for you to articulate your own visions of housing. You know, good luck. There's no money and you can't raise it, but, you know, I'm sure you'll figure something out, right? Which is exactly what you're saying, right? So I think that that needs to be those, in the same way that, like, uh, discourses around, around densification need to be unpacked and looked at carefully, right? Density is not good in and of itself. There's all kinds of density, and some of them suck. 
right? Some of them are terrible, right? For example, going on in the downtown east side right now, it's uh, done uh, in, in, uncarefully uh, and with, uh, with not a whole lot of heart and a whole lot of thought and a whole lot of uh, community input into it, right? So the idea of density is a good one, but there's a whole lot to kind of work with there. In the same way that I would say the idea of local power, the idea of local democracy has a tremendous amount of force to it, I think, and a tremendous amount of possibility, but only if it comes with a requisite amount of power. Um, and so, so many of the conversations we have are, um, are, are in the absence of that, right? Um, in the absence of cities just being left adrift in a sea of, you know, good luck, man. Raise your money on the bond market if you can. So I think that's a loose, yeah. uh, a loose answer to your question, but not so great. To about the question that you asked. <laughs> good. But that's it. We're, we're over time. Why don't, we, why don't we open it up now? Um, is that where you're You good? Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. So uh, questions, comments, thoughts, objections? I think you have something, some button you can push there. And, yeah. uh, the buttons aren't working. Oh, let me rephrase that. Those buttons aren't working. So, uh, Question, so, questions yeah. will be answered counterclockwise. <laughs> yeah. uh... Good. But don't be shy, though, because Charlie's going to start hitting again. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and it's funny because I, I tell a story, and I don't think it's that book, another book, but uh, you know, a lot, so much of of, of uh, the way Vancouver tends to go about stuff uh, uh, is kind of this like uh, stutter step of like, um, uh, well, I, I live beside Bocce Ball Park and near Commercial Drive, and, and they did, a couple of years ago they did a great job actually of, of they, they took it down and they, well they, they they tore it up and then the city strike happened so there was fences around it for an extra six months but they redesigned the whole thing and it was it was quite a nice job actually they did a nice job design wise it was pretty good and then the next morning I went out uh, right after they opened the park and I counted there were fifteen signs around the perimeter of the park right talking about. Uh, how long the leash to your dog had to be, about how far the dog, exactly how far the dog had to stay away from the park, exactly how long you're allowed to stay there, exactly where you're allowed to play the ball, exactly where, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I think that uh, the Vancouver's, uh, I'm not sure, paternalistic is not the right word, right word uh, twitch towards the regulation and the, and the choreographing of public space often comes with a, a kickback then, right? So let's say we're going to create some public space. We're going to... Uh, over-manage and over-design it all to hell. We're going to hope the way that you're going to behave in it. And then they're going to watch it and they go, man, it's dead. And then we'll try to pull back those regulations quickly, right? And to try to figure out how to pull them back. And you see that, for example, with the street carts, right? You know, the, the street cart debate is kind of funny, right? I mean, one of the things about, uh, that I would say brings vitality and life to any city, and that any city that you visited that you could think of that's got a real kind of active street life has, has got to be around buying cheap, you know, questionable quality food on the street, right? I mean, that's... that's <laughs> That's part of the great thing about, about being in any street, right? As a city, you know, is, is, buying, is buying food on the street, right? But, and, you know, so I think our street vendors are a great uh, move towards kind of creating a kind of public space and kind of a public vitality. But then they come with all these regulations, right? They've come with all kinds of regulations, only a certain number of licenses, but I, uh, about exactly where they can go, exactly what they can sell. And I think that it's kind of this ongoing kind of... Um, I want to call it a waspish, waspish analness or something, you know, about, about, about we want life but not too much, you know, just exactly the amount, right? Um, I, know, I can't remember what your question was, sorry. Yeah, 
I think, yeah, and yeah, I think both things, you know. I think there's a constant kind of play with that, you know, back and forth, right? And I think in general that we have to be comfortable with something that Vancouver is profoundly not comfortable with, which is messiness, you know. Uh, you know, for example, when people were, uh, you know, parking ugly-looking boats out in, in False Creek, right? Just get them out of there. I don't care where they go. I don't care where those people go, but they're ugly. I don't want to look at those boats. Get them out of there. There's homeless people living on there, you know. And so much of that conversation ends up hap- happening around safety, right? It, it's unsafe. Those people are unsafe. They're, there's not sprinklers on those boats. You know, there's not fire exits. Get them out of there. Um, so I, I think that in general, a growing city has to confront the idea of messiness. And I think that the, with messiness comes a little bit of dysfunction, a little bit of social dysfunction, uh, a little bit of funk, a little bit of flavor. And I think that we should, uh, my hope would be to, uh, to, to embrace it, not be afraid of it. I don't know. But the answer is I don't know where it's going. But what I would hope is that, uh, that the, the, it's not just a, you know, a cultural funk. It's the capacity to, uh, to be unpredictable for a city to be serendipitous, for a city to not exactly know where it's going and what you're going to find around the next corner. Yeah, uh, go ahead, please. Why don't you answer that? When you start, when you start answering, then I'll answer too. Why don't you answer? Oh, I mean, uh, well, I was, yeah, I was thinking about that in terms of the, that we didn't, uh, the question, Vancouver, greatest place on earth, the, neither of us really I, I offers an answer to the question. I guess I was at like that the um, long answer is yes with a but, and the uh, short answer is no with a, are you crazy? Um, so, the, I mean, Vancouver is, um, I, I agree with Matt that certain things are, are getting done uh, right here. And um, a lot of the times it, it does, uh, I mean, it, all these questions take place within, um, you know, one of the things that came up at this arts debate last week was, you know, would it, would it be too expensive to build a new art gallery or should we have a bunch of smaller galleries that all have some money? Or if we spend a bunch of money building um, an art gallery, uh, is there, um, are we then going to spend so much on the building that we won't be able to fill it with great content? And, you know, at some point in this debate, Francis Bula just kind of said, like, the whole price tag for the thing is the cost of the new roof for BC Place. Um, so, you know, $400, $500 million is just, you know, an unfathomable sum when we're talking about, uh, you know, an art gallery and what we can do with it. And, and for BC Place, it's just like, hey, what are you going to not have a half billion dollar new roof on a place where no one ever goes? Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, it is about uh, really kind of aggressively uh, overturning the... The, the terms of the debate where um, you should be embarrassed to ask for a new roof for BC Place is going to cost half a billion dollars and that we should be able to, you know, not have arts groups all at each other's throat. But, I mean, these, these are like... Uh, of course, they're complicated questions. I don't want to sort of uh, boil them down. And I'm not, uh, you know, an urban policy um, expert. Uh, 
what we do know, and and what what we do know from, uh, like for instance, what Matt's talking about, and and uh, work by writers like Mike Davis and stuff like that, is that, um, and the one thing that I do kind of feel confident that I can weigh in on uh, is that I don't think that the emphasis on uh, the green green capital um, and this kind of uh, um, corporate-friendly environmentalism, which has become sort of the mantra in Vancouver. Um, has a lot of elements to it that I think are really undeniably positive. Like one, it's just it's very positive to have a mayor who talks about the environment uh, so much. Uh, things like the bike lanes and and uh, they actually raise questions um, that people then have to have conversations about. So people talk about you know the bike lanes cause traffic jams, as though traffic jamming started a year and a half ago or whatever. Like the I mean, it's such an absurd. Uh, statement and these kinds of statements are almost never and, and I think that uh, the city hall has shown real leadership on things like that. That having been said, I mean, Matt's absolutely right, and and there's science to back it up that to make a city more equal will make it uh, infinitely more ecologically um, uh, sound than any number of other policies. You create a city that people can't live in. That doesn't mean that millionaires start making their own coffees. That means that people who make coffee start coming in from Langley or Maple Ridge or whatever, and all of a sudden you're right back to this sort of car-dependent um, uh, you know, world that you were initially trying to escape. Um, and I think that those conversations about... Uh, uh, so, you know, if, if there's... There are a million things that Vancouver, I think, it, is doing right. And um, I, I try not to be too... Uh, glum, glum about things, but I think the overarching sense of, you know, with a few tweaks on this neoliberal um, system or what, that with a few tweaks we can make everything okay, and it's just not, uh, it's just not um, at all the, uh, the the truth. And part of that I think involves, I mean, city the city level of government isn't a really precarious position where it has to be on the one hand kind of uh, confrontational with higher levels of government in order to lobby on behalf of the city, but at the end of the day is dependent on their largesse and so has to walk a, a really fine line. So it, it is. It's a, it's a very complicated um, situation. But a lot, a lot is going right. I mean, it's one of the reasons I, I love to live here. Good. Well, I'll answer that too. And I, and, uh, um, I think your question is a good one because too often times uh, uh, I find myself kind of feeling cynical, <laughs> you know, feeling cynical and talking cynical as if that would be more entertaining. Um, uh, and I would, I would echo what, what Charles just said here too, which is that, you know, I stay here for, uh, you know, I lived in Vancouver for 20 years and, and for plenty of good reasons, right, for real good reasons. It's been a tremendously uh, awesome place to raise a family. It's been a, it's been a great place in all kinds of ways. And, and I guess that there's a couple things I would point to quickly. Um, would be the, the first one would be I think Vancouver kind of paradoxically does really well is uh, is this kind of dorky sincerity you know um, particularly my my dealings over the years in a whole variety of ways with uh, public officials with politicians with city staff have been uh, overwhelmingly 
great, actually, in all, in all honesty. And, and that I think that Vancouver's capacity to, to actually to listen and to learn at an institutional level, I think, is really good. And I think that the, the calcification and the kind of intransigence you find in so many other kind of political institutions and, and city bureaucracies uh, around the world, uh, I think, are, are, are not so true here. You can get access to people fairly easily, and they tend to listen to you carefully. Um, and so that's the one thing. Uh, I would point to about good uh, is good is that you know that that kind of our the sincerity of the city that kind of leaves it a bit bland sometimes is also really lovely in lots of ways, um, and, and even more than that I would say the thing that Vancouver does really well is it and I, and I think it's true is that it really is a city of neighborhoods in lots of ways. Um, um, there's a real distinctness to city neighbor, to, to a whole variety of neighborhoods, and people really are attached to their neighborhoods in lots of ways. And people there's there's sometimes there's kind of an obnoxiousness of it. Uh, I would think primarily from people like. Um, like me, <laughs> you know, who lived in the drive for 20 years. But there's something really important about the attachment that we each feel to our neighborhoods and the, dis- the, the, distinctne- the distinctness of them. Um, and, and I think that that's part of, uh, you know, I, I think about that when I talk about densification, we talk about sprawl. Um, you know, you, it's a bit counterintuitive, but, but retaining that character is, is so fundamental in a lot of ways. Thinking about how to live densely is really our only chance to retain the integrity and the quality of agricultural lands, of rural lands, of small towns. You know, I think about that sometimes in the times when I've, you know, gotten, uh, started driving east from here, right? You know, you drive east out the, what's Broadway turn, the Barnett Highway? And it's... Um, Bye, thank you. Yeah. Sir. And, you, you know, you go east out that way. And then I, I, there's a time I noticed there's a little sign, you've probably seen it, it says, Welcome to the village of Mallardville. And you're like, where the hell's the village, right? It's just another kind of like, it looks the same five minutes ago, it looks five minutes the same, hence, you know? That, that, that really what it does is, is that kind of sprawl and that kind of, and I'm not just talking about the suburbs, is that it does, it begins to extinguish the, the distinctiveness and the diversity of the city. And you know that from, for, you know, Toronto, for example, where you start in Whitby and you drive to St. Catharines, and it, there really was one city, right? Those, all those were once were small towns and distinctive places are really expunged in lots of ways. So I would say to me that's, that's the thing that Vancouver has done and continues to do best is protect the quality of its individual neighborhoods. Great, thank you. Uh, why don't we go over here, sir, and then we'll come over here. Okay. Um, I've got a question for Matt, but it's framed in a Charlie Demers style. <laughs> sir, can you talk louder, sir? Yeah. I can't quite hear you. <laughs> Oh, good. That's a, that's a fantastic question. Thank you. Judge, you want to try to have a, have a shot at it? No, why don't you answer one of the hard <laughs> questions yeah, right yeah. away? Yeah. This is why trust is breaking down in Canadian society. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, it's a it's a terrific question. And honestly, like I've been I've been talking and thinking and writing and and listening about something that I intuitively believe and get that the inadequacy of tolerance and something that I that I I've 
that kind of moves me quite a bit is to listen to, for example, Gustavo Esteva, who I, I trust tremendously, to talk about, about the idea of hospitality. And then I'm not so sure what it looks like. And I'm not so sure about what that distance looks like exactly. And I've been thinking about it and working on it for some time. And, you know, like some of that stuff, I, I agree with the polling, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a large part of the social capital kind of debate has suggested that, that social capital, and this is kind of a Putnam-esque kind of thing, that social capital breaks down the more difference there is within a neighborhood. And, and then, you know, and, and Putnam went away with that, and then uh, he took about six months to respond. And he came back with a response that kind of said, well, yeah, okay, sure it does, but then over time it increases. It just takes time. You know, what you're doing is your is distrust and, and intolerance increases momentarily, and then it begins to break down as people get used to each other. And, and I get that in some ways. And I, and I guess my loose answer and, and, a, and my loosely inadequate answer to your question is there's no other route. There's no other route. That historical narrative that, that, that binds us together, it's not coming. No matter how much the Tea Party wants to try to force it, no matter how much what every American wants to know uh, is put on as required reading for people, no matter what people think about cultural literacy, we live in a liquid world. We live in a world that's always been globalized, but is, in glo is globalized at an increasingly you know, fast rate. And so while there, I think there is some truth to what you say, I, I don't think there's any other answer other than to embrace something beyond tolerance. Tolerance is, is that polite indifference, that I don't like you, I don't respect you, I don't know what the hell you're about, but I'll deal with you because I have to. Hospitality is something else entirely again. And I think that there's no other road despite the tremendous kind of blocks, and both intellectual and, and real blocks that, that, that you know, stand in that way. Um, so the answer is really I don't have a good answer in large respect, except to say uh, one other thing is that we know it, right? We know that it's possible. We know it was possible in a, in a very, in a very uh, visceral way. And I'll give you one tiny example of this, is that some time ago... Um, uh, my family and I started hosting potlucks in the in the park, uh, in Bachi Bob in Victoria Park, and we did this thing where we, um, um, uh, it's you know incredibly easy in, in lots of ways, um, and we we just dragged some tables out. Uh, now, so I'm sorry, I'm, I'm screwing up the story here. Um, so what I did is I, we, we set a date, and I called up a bunch of friends, walked around to the neighborhood, walked around to everybody who's surrounded the park, and said, Hey, look, we're gonna have a potluck in the park. Um, you know, would you come? And I just kind of kept doing it until I got about 70 people who agreed they would come. So I figured that if 70 people agreed to come, probably, you know, 40 would actually show up. Um, and so then the day of, we just dragged, the, dragged a bunch of tables, dragged our dining room table and stuff out into the park and, uh, and, and had a whole bunch of people bring food. And in the hour beforehand, me and my kids walked up and down the, the drive and we went to the kettle and we walked kind of the alleys and everybody that looked like they were broke Everybody looked like, you know, they had a tattooed face and were bum, uh, you know, bumming money at the SkyTrain. And everybody looked like they could handle a meal. I invited them. I just said, hey, you know, why don't you come to the park and why don't we have a, a spare meal, you know? And, and it turns out that they end up being real fun. They end up being real easy. And they end up being, you know, 250 or 300 people sitting around the park all afternoon eating food that nobody really knows who brought. Uh, it certainly uh, violates a whole ton of bylaws, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, people end up eating together. Nobody knows who really bought the food. Nobody really knows who didn't bring any food. Um, and it ends up, you see people, you see the tattooed face kid, you know, hanging, you know, at least in the vicinity of the sort of uptight homeowner down the street, right? And, 
and not that that's a tremendously important event, except to say that I think my best experiences around hospitality tend to revolve around food in lots of ways. And we know that experience. We know that experience of, of sharing food together as something different than just a, I don't know who you are, I don't know what you're about, and I hate you, but we have to live on the same block, so so be it. It's not really an answer, but it's as good as I got right now, sir. And that's Matt Hearn uh, in conversation with Charlie Demers, um, and that was recorded on uh, January 27th, 2011, uh, a series hosted um, by Simon Fraser, University's Department of History, Think You Know Vancouver, Think Again, and Matt Hearn, a local urbanist and author, and as well as uh, Charlie Demers, uh, comedian and author, uh, gave short talks. And um, over the course of the hour, you've heard from Matt Hearn, uh, who is author of um, uh, Common Ground in a Liquid City, Essays in Defense of an Urban Future. And he's a uh, founder of Car Free Vancouver Day and co-directs the Purple Thistle Center in East Vancouver. And if you want to catch the first half of that with uh, Charlie Demers, uh, you can check out thecityfm.org uh, for that past podcast that ran in March. And uh, we've come to uh, the end of the show, and I want to thank you for tuning in. As always, uh, this is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. And you can find a past um, archive or an archive of past podcasts at thecityfm.org. Also check the program out on Facebook, uh, The City Critical Urban Discussions, and on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore fm. Uh, Lots of ways to check it out, and also lots of uh, web content also at, again, thecityfm.org. So check that all out. Uh, We're going to be back next week with more Critical Urban Discussions and uh, coverage of the DOXA Documentary Film Festival and a number of our film recommendations uh, around urban issues as well. So that to come in coming weeks. So again, uh, stay tuned uh, for more uh, Critical Urban Discussions over the next couple weeks. And we've got uh, Flex Your Head coming up next on CITR Live at 6 p.m. And if you're on CJSF listening syndicated, you've got Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman coming up next. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care. She's a bad hey, I'm sick and tired of hearing your band playing on and on and on. Gosh, so loud. Man, I wish we had a safe place to play music. Yeah, and shows too. The Safe Amplification Site Society is a non-profit group dedicated to establishing a legal, affordable, all-ages venue for music and arts in Vancouver. For more information or to get involved, check out www.safeamp.org. Go, 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 go.